But you turn with me, if you remember, Revelation chapter 10, where we'll pick up where we left off. I do want to say that starting Advent Sunday, which will be next Sunday, and for four Sundays before Christmas, I would like to be uh, in the Gospels or in a Christmas message. And so this will kind of round out uh, our, our studies in the Great Tribulation uh, until the Christmas season is over. And I think you would understand why the Holy Spirit might lead me in that direction. Merry Christmas. Now let's turn to the chaos judgment of the end of the world. And so with that, uh, Revelation chapter 10, which is uh, kind of mild as chapters go in Revelation. Now, Father, we do always want to acknowledge your presence here by the Holy Spirit. Apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing in these matters that require spiritual assistance. And so we humbly bow before you and ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding and help our spirits to catch what it is your spirit is saying to us as individuals and to our church that we might be blessed as we put these things into practice in Christ's name. Amen. So if the Great Tribulation were compared to a football game, we're at halftime here in chapter 10. Now, actually from chapter 10 to chapter 14 of Revelation, uh, there's a break in the action. So the narrative does not advance. That is the storyline uh, doesn't go any further, but we do get a lot of invaluable insight. Well, if you're just joining us, what storyline is it, you may be asking? Well, the crux of the message of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19, considering there are only 22 chapters, it's a big part of Revelation, talks about the last seven years of human history called the Great Tribulation. We get the Great Tribulation title from the book itself, chapter 7 and verse 14, and also in Matthew 24 and verse 21, the Lord Jesus calls this time the Great Tribulation, a word that just means trouble or stress. But uh, in this case, uh, the Lord says, this, for then there will be great tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. And so this is a horrendous last seven years of human history as we would know it. Now, leading up to this period, according to the scriptures, to get you up to where we dive in today, the Lord has come and appeared as a thief in the night. And he's come for his church. He catches her up out of harm's way to be with him. This is called the pre-tribulation view. Before tribulation, the Lord appears. Now, this makes sense because actually Jesus promised straight out to keep the church from this hour that would come upon the whole earth. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. 
Paul and the rest of the New Testament also supports this as we are told believers are not appointed to wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. And since the great tribulation is in Revelation called the day of God's wrath, which believers are not appointed unto, we can see that we will not be present. And of course, lastly, in Matthew 24, very interesting now, the Bible describes the Lord's appearing in two very different ways. For one, in Matthew 24, the Lord says it will be business as usual. There will be weddings and banquets and nobody will suspect anything's coming. And then he appears. And then in Revelation 19, he appears and the world is all but destroyed. And so... But you know what? He may not be available, but the Lord is always available. Amen? <laughs> and so, moving on, isn't that crazy? I mean, two different uh, understandings of the Lord's appearing. And that is, well, which is it? Well, it's both. The Lord describes the first one as a thief in the night. And funny thing, what does a thief do when he comes in surprise? He takes something with him. That's why he calls himself a thief in the night. He comes to an unsuspecting world and takes what's valuable to him, and he takes it with him. And then the second time, he comes to conquer the earth. And so the day of God's wrath has come. It started back in Revelation chapter 6, and so we've been in it a while if you're just joining us. And it, it's really nothing new. In the Old Testament, 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah, along with many other prophets, put it this way, see the day of the Lord, which is another word or phrase for the great tribulation. It's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming a cruel time, a cruel day, wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and, I, and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And so we have Joel and Amos and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Obadiah all with this same refrain. And the New Testament continues it on. It's nothing new. The joy of Christmas is the gospel. And it's a way out of what is coming. Jesus said in Mark 10 and verse 45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom payment for you and the world. In fact, as I've mentioned, the day the church was born, the day of the Lord was brought up in the very first gospel message. They're in Acts chapter 2. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this case, they're speaking foreign languages that they had never learned. People were hearing God's praise in their own uh, native tongue. And there they were. And then some of them heard this and said, hey, you guys are drunk. And Peter gets up filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, these men aren't drunk as you think. 
It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by Joel. And then the very first gospel, New Testament, Holy Spirit, birth church sermon says this. In the last days, God's spirit, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the day of the Lord, the great tribulation that we're studying from Revelation chapter 6 through 19, graphic blow-by-blow depiction of what the day of the Lord is, is really part and parcel of the gospel. It's the gospel. It's saying Jesus came, God became a man and paid the penalty and the wrath that was due you and me in the world was poured out on his dear son, God the Son, the second person of the Godhead. This is the gospel. Now, uh, here's the context, and we're going to dive in. And I don't know, Dave, if you managed to find the seals and the trumpets. You did. Thank you for that. I'm a picture person. I, that really just helps me to have that. You can keep that up there for a couple minutes as I go through this to bring people up to snuff. Uh, chapter 6 through 19 are presented to us in 21 phases. And here they are, seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And now we've already opened uh, the seven seals, and we found there the Antichrist bent on conquest. One, two was global, uh, not warming. I almost said that. It says global war, <laughs> and I almost went with the whole thing there. Yeah, well, there will be global warming as a third of the earth is burned up. I would presume that would be very warm on the globe. Now, <laughs> unbelievable. Didn't take me very long to get back into the groove, did it? I was doing things like that. Uh, number three, famine. Number four, death. Number five, mass martyrdom of those who do not take the mark of the beast off with their heads. Uh, number six, cataclysmic changes in the earth, islands disappearing. And then there's always a pause. There's always a pause. There's six then there's a pause, and then there's seven. And we're going to see that again with number seven seal opens up, and lo and behold, seven trumpets appear. There's a pause, and then the, the, the trumpets sound. Now, we've gotten through six of the seven trumpets. Let me refresh your memory. Trumpet one, a third of the earth burns up, fire, hail, mixed with blood. Trumpet two, a flaming mountain, what appears to be, anyway, tossed into the sea into the ocean, a third of the marine life gone. Uh, trumpet three, uh, what appears to be a flaming torch and a star falls into the rivers and a third of the rivers and fresh water supplies poisoned. And trumpet four, a third of the sun, moon, and stars have diminished in their power. There's a power outage in the heavenlies. Now, last time we met, we talked about trumpet five and six because that took a whole chapter. Trumpet five, terrible, demonic oppression, five-month period where these locust-type demonic 
creatures are loosed and go after the unrepented humans. And then Trumpet 6, a demon-inspired army on the rampage, 200 million troops strong, that destroys and is responsible for a quarter of the world's population to perish. So if you're taking, if you're, you've got a scorecard, that would be a third of seal number four. With seal number four, a third of the population is gone. With trumpet number six, another quarter is added to the third which is seven twelfths, which is 58% of the world's population now perished. Let me now prove to you one way of looking at uh, the Great Tribulation uh, as false. It's called preterism. It's very popular right now among liberal scholars, and you will hear about it. Preterism means past already. So there's a teaching out there that's gaining popularity that the tribulation's already done and fulfilled. You might ask, how is that possible? Well, (laughs) A.D. 70, so uh, Jerusalem was leveled. But my friends, Jerusalem at that time was less than one square mile. Now, A.D. 70 and Jerusalem's destruction clearly was a little uh, picture, microcosm, of the end of the world. But because of the, let me just quote one writer, he just said it so well. While A.D. 70 and the destruction of ancient Jerusalem, less than one square mile in size, foreshadows the end of all things, it desperately falls short of the global chaos, worldwide destruction, and galactic and geological upset that chapters 6 through 19 demand. So you cannot tell me that this has already happened and point to AD 70 in one square mile uh, place and say, see, it was annihilated and all of it's all gone in the past and we don't have anything to, to worry about. A lot of explaining to do, if, if that's your case. So let's move on now. In keeping with the pattern, then, there were six seals, as I said, a pause, and then the seven, six trumpets, pause. We finished the six trumpets. We're in the pause right before seventh trumpet blows. And when the seventh trumpet blows, those six bulls happen really fast. It's all but over. And so we're going to take a look at that now. I will make a comment, thank you for the slide, about the pattern here in the God bringing the world to the precipice and then pulling back. And then he does it again and he pulls back. And he gives men time to repent. Because our God, our God and Savior wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, he's delayed things because he's patient, not willing that any perish. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their sins and live, says the Lord. So wasn't he like that with you? 
He brought you right up to the end, pulled back and said, come on, are you going to turn? Come on, do you see me? Are you going to get right? And then we're like, yeah, we are. And then, uh, you know, the next day we forget all about it because we're all restored. And, you know, and then he has to bring us there again. And, and, and then he pulls back. And then that's just how he is. He has to get, takes a little bit to get through to us. It's unbelievable to me and to most Christians that after all of that, the Bible says they're still going on with their false religions, their sexual immorality, and their drugs and their crimes. It just keeps going. So here we are in the pause, getting ready for the really the last shebang, the big set of the bowls, right? Revelation 10, 1 through 11. Let's walk through it a little bit at a time for better understanding. Verse 1 through 4. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> Let's pause here for point number one. A magnificent angel appears. A magnificent angel appears. Now, angels are important in Revelation. They're mentioned 60 times and in language very similar to the glorious language used to describe our Lord and Savior Jesus this angel comes with God's authority obviously to help John understand some things now he's unnamed and there's a quite a divide among scholars about who this angel is is uh, since he's unnamed, I don't think we need to press the issue. However, uh, some think it's Jesus, but I think verse one suggests otherwise, uh, because for two reasons. <clears throat> First of all, uh, John describes him as another angel. I look up and I see another angel, and the the word for another is alos, not heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. So right there, my friends, listen, our Lord Jesus is no angel. He's superior to the angels. He is God. He is God, the, God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me paraphrase that. Hidden within Jesus' human body was God Almighty. Behind those big brown eyes, the God who made heaven and earth in a human body, happy to take on human form to save us, God, Jesus, with us. Yeah, so to call him another, here's another angel of the same kind. Uh, I don't think so. Well, I certainly see why, because of all the graphic details that are so divine. Now, uh, true, the Lord Jesus wears the title in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Never uh, an angel, 
always the angel of the Lord in his what we call pre-incarnate state, Jesus before Bethlehem, because he existed before Bethlehem. Well, and when that title is used, you always know it's more than an angel. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am, I was, I am to come, I am the Lord. Oh, well, that's no angel, the messenger. It's Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, speaking to Moses in a flame of self-sustaining fire. Yeah. And so... Moving on, also notice with me that the angel comes down from heaven to earth. And really, you know, Jesus comes down from heaven in the finale. So so it doesn't make sense that he's kind of hopping in for a little visit there. And so David Hawking said it this way in Revelation, angels are angels, not symbols of events, things, places, or people. Um, J. Vernon McGee, a magnificent, powerful angel with clear features and credentials to identify him with the person of Christ as the Lord's special envoy. So John leaves nothing to our imagination. Boy, we really get a good description. Let's talk about it because it really glorifies the one he represents. Robed with a cloud, always a display of God's nature, his magnificent splendor and unparalleled glory uh, is described with a cloud. You know, uh, he appears to Moses in a cloud of glory. At our Lord's trial, in the middle of the night, when he sat there bloody and bruised before the Pharisees in the high court, the question came at him, Tell us plainly, under oath, I charge you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, and you will all see me coming on the clouds of glory. Well, he was born in humility, but he was exalted into heaven in a cloud of glory. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 say he goes up in a cloud of glory and in that same kind of glorious way, he'll return the face of this angel, brilliant like the sun. And light always is the symbol of moral purity, goodness, truth, and life. The angels at the tomb had this kind of shine. So, uh, you know, I say this, never look for light within. Don't do that. You're only going to find darkness without the Holy Spirit. We look for light upward to heaven. The world searches within. I heard somebody say on the radio, I always go with my gut and my heart because your, your heart will never lie to you. I almost, I almost, it almost caused a car accident. <laughs> what, what do you mean your heart? My heart lies to me all the time. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it and beyond all cure? Jeremiah Chapter 17, verse 9. Moving on. (laughs) Sunlight through clouds, what should that produce? It should produce a rainbow. And it does. And the rainbow, even in wrath, he remembers mercy. Habakkuk, chapter 3 and verse 2. God keeps his promises, even the hard ones, like the great tribulation. 
and the day of the Lord. Extremities like fiery pillars, well, evil doesn't stand a chance, does it? I, I, I mean, seriously, they are, they are some powerful-looking beings. The guards at the tomb, one of them appeared to roll the tomb stone away and sat there and quote here's what the here's what the scriptures say his appearance this angel was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men so notice the authority that this angel has he kind of stakes out the place for the lord you know how joshua was told there in chapter one and verse three joshua wherever you put your feet man that's staked out for israel and in my name and it's this kind of thing that's happening as this massive gigantic angel comes down and stakes out the lord's claim now he's got this little scroll in his hand, and it kind of reminds us of the scroll we saw back in chapter 5 and verse 1, where we determined it was kind of God's plan of redemption, his authority and right to judge the world and the, uh, the title deed to the earth kind of thing. And is this some sort of summary, some kind of an abridged representation of that? Perhaps. Uh, really, here's the purpose of the little scroll to remind us again that uh, the destiny of the earth and its people belong to him to do as he pleases. He created it all. He gives life to all. He died for all. He can end it all. He's the Lord of all and begin fresh and anew. And that's what the reminder is. Because why? Because we're coming up to the part where the end is near. And terrible things are going to come. And he wants to establish that this is under his sovereign control. You know, the Antichrist and the devil and the evil armies are wreaking havoc on the earth. But now we're reminded of who's really in charge. Here's Leon Morris's take on this verse. The angel's posture is an indication of enormous size. The world despised Christians as members of a little insignificant church. The world disregarded all they stood for, but their faith was based on the word of God, and now that word is in the hands of this colossal figure whose stance spans both land and sea. God's word towers above the affairs of men. Now, certainly those persecuted Christians in those first seven churches get a word like this, and they must be very encouraged. Can you imagine the size of this being? One, one foot is on the sea and one foot is on the land. This is no ordinary sized being. Now the angel has this book or God's word or his authority in his hand. And he plants that left foot on the sea and the right foot on the land. And it just says complete authority over the entire situation on earth. And then a regal shout like a roar. You know, what's the shout about? Well, you know, trumpet number seven, when it blows, did you know the hallelujah chorus comes from trumpet number seven? When trumpet number seven goes, here's what happens. The angel sounds... Trumpet number seven, and there are loud voices in heaven which say, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is from the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, the Hallelujah Chorus is from (laughs) Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet. Now, things get very interesting here because from the throne, it seems, the seven thunders speak here at verse 4. The voice of the seven thunders, scholars say, is a symbol for the voice of God. The voice of the Lord, seven thunders, perfect power, supreme authority. And just, you know, for fun, Psalm 29 has the voice of the Lord thundering seven times. The voice is mentioned. And so God is speaking. And interestingly, John understands it. God says something. The angel throws back his head and lets out a victory shout like this deal is almost done. And the Lord speaks and says something. And John gets it and he gets his pen and the scroll and he starts to write. And the Lord goes, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Not yet or that was just for you. This isn't public information. It's not helpful to everybody. They're not ready for it. They wouldn't understand it. This is for you. Whatever reason, it's just that we're thinking, why even tell us that? Just like leave that part out so that we're not thinking, you know, you said something and then you said, shh. Well, you know, when John gets off of Patmos, which he does, and goes back to his church at Ephesus, which he does, where he dies... But he lives a while. You know, there were Christians who went up to him and said, hey, we read the letter about those seven thunders. Man, you could tell me. (laughs) I won't tell anybody. (laughs) And that's how secrets go in the church. We just tell one person at a time and swear them to secrecy, right? Well, yeah, I don't think that happened. And I already know the answer what John would say, not gonna happen now I speaking of things the Lord says and then seals up what is that saying it's saying we don't know everything saying that there's a lot more than what is revealed he's revealed what's important to us for us to know but that's not all that's there I got a text recently about three weeks ago and it read how old is the earth so i knew somebody was arguing with somebody and they just said you know 1-800 ask pastor ross (laughs) and so how old is the earth and i said well god made it in six days and humans been on it for about six thousand years but i couldn't tell you how old the earth is that's kind of a mystery There's a lot of things like that. I mean, Adam. How old was Adam when God made him? When Adam was two days old, he looked pretty good for a two-day-old, didn't he? He had a full set of choppers at two days, actually at one day. How old was the earth? How old was Adam? Uh, You know what? Why did God create the devil when he could figure all of this out? Why did God create a hell? Why did God create people when he knew there was a good opportunity for them to miss the way? 
why is there a children's hospital with these cute little shaved head babies suffering while the wicked are out there partying, living it up, and go to their doctor and they say, clean as a bell. How could God choose us before the foundations of the world and then we have free choice? The revealed things belong to us. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29.29, the revealed things belong to us and our children. The things revealed belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. I like what Hal Lindsey said. Anyway, no matter what the case is, it won't be long before we can ask the angel personally what that unmentionable message was because we are going to see him sooner than later. Amen? Listen, we got a lot of time in eternity and something tells me when we're out of this body and we're perfected, a lot of those questions will already be answered, but we still have eternity, and there, there's a, a will of God and a plan of God that, that is more and more, and we will be ever learning and ever growing in eternity. That's when the tears are dried. That's where the questions are answered forever. That day is coming, says the Lord. <laughs> Uh, we better move on. It goes faster, by the way. Five through seven. You'll see it's very easy now. Then the angel, verse five, I had seen standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So we've seen, one, a magnificent angel, and number two, an encouraging declaration. It's important for me to let you know that the word for announced there is the word where we get evangelize. So it's the good news. The mystery that will be accomplished is the good news. So in 18 verses from now, the seventh trumpet will sound and the final judgment bowls will be poured onto the earth and it will be done. But it's the good news that has been prophesied that will be fulfilled. Now, I, I, I suppose not everybody will see this as good news because the bad guys certainly won't. We, we do. Uh, if you're at a crime scene in progress and news comes that uh, the cops are closing in, in fact, they're turning into the driveway, and everybody at the crime scene hears that while the crime is being perpetrated. Well, the good guys, the victims, are relieved and comforted. But the bad guys, this isn't evangelism at all. It's not a good word for them. 
So we see this angel takes an oath and he swears by Jesus' title. So another reason to think this angel is not the Lord himself because he's swearing by Jesus' own uh, title to him who lives forever and ever. The Lord could just swear by in his own name. And he says, here's, here's what he says. He says he's taking an oath, raising his hand to heaven and just say, just so you know. Right before that seventh trumpet goes, he says, no more delay. Everything in the 66 books of holy prophetic scriptures will be completed. All of the good promises, the gospel, that's the word used, will, be, will come to pass. No more delay. No more delay. Adam and Eve were told, look, things are really bad here. To cover your shame, let me teach you about atonement. But one day, there'll be a blood atonement that will cover the whole human race, and they wait. There's a delay. Abraham is told, excuse me, Abraham, through you, the entire world will be blessed through a nation. One will come through you. And all the world will be blessed and there's a delay, Moses is told. There's one coming that will be the real true deliverer of God's people, leading them into the true promised land and there's a delay. Isaiah, the lion will lay down with the lamb and men will beat their uh, uh, swords into pruning hooks. No more war and there's a delay. David's told, hey, somebody from your own flesh and blood is going to sit on an eternal throne, Isaiah, and all the prophets. Sin will be atoned for, peace on the earth, and and, uh, evildoers destroyed, and God's paradise, and blessing, and restoration. Jesus tells us, well, Mary was told. She's told... uh, Your son will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And there's a delay, 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 delay. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also at my father's house. There's room for you. And if I go, I will come back to get you so that we can be together forever and delay Delay, delay, delay. And then one moment, the seventh trumpet sounds, and he swears by Almighty God, time is up, and it's going to happen. It's coming down now. I swear by him who did it all, it's coming. No more delay. That seventh trumpet goes off. Those bulls are like, foom, 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 foom. Done. And he appears. It's over. And as C.S. Lewis said, when the author of it all walks into view, you know the play is over. (laughs) Amen? No more delay. Let's finish up just a couple verses here, verses 8 and following. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. 
So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, please. He said to me, I'm sure John said please. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll, the little book from the angel's hand, and I ate it. I ta- it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Well, we've looked at a magnificent angel, an encouraging declaration, and now a bittersweet message. What fantastic imagery, plain and simple, self-explanatory here, and not uncommon in the scriptures, this idea of eating the word of God and it being sweet to the taste. Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah's told the same thing, eat this book in this vision. Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, same kind of thing happening there. The Lord Jesus compared it this way, he said, man can't live on just food, but on the words from God's mouth. That's what you must eat and live. He even says relationship with me, he says, unless, then this caused many disciples to, to freak out and leave him. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. The idea, if you're not born again, this should clear it all up. Jesus and the gospel and what's in the Bible and the cross has to get into you. It has to be received by faith into the the heart and the core of your being in the spirit. It must be assimilated within or you will perish. That's not something you can just know about. It's not something you can have a lot of friends who are or come from a family that is. It's something that you personally had to take, open, and receive. Not physically, but spiritually. And unless you have that, it's curtains. That's what life is. It's not about being good. (laughs) You're not going to get a balance beam at the end and he goes, oh, good, bad, mostly good. I'm going to let you in. Zero. No, doesn't happen. Unless you ate. Did you eat the scroll? Did you eat the book? Is Is it in you assimilating, being digested? Or is it just in your mouth and you spit it out? This is really the idea here. <clears throat> Very interesting to me. God's word and will in this scroll uh, really will provide the content of what John is expected to preach. Men and women, Christians, we don't preach our own ideas. What a disaster. We're supposed to have been fed. The Holy Spirit comes into the man or the woman of God, opens their hearts, and deposits his word and his truth. And then from that, we preach what has been given to us. We're not making things up and telling you what I think or what he or she thinks. We've been fueled. He says, now put this in and and listen to the gospel message is going to always have a bitter, sweet component to it. It's impossible for you to take the bitter out. It is very popular, and listen to me, very popular for false teachers today to say, you know what, this bitter part, 
it's not attractive. It's not what people want to hear. It make it ruins the message to say something like there's a hell, and if you don't come to Jesus, you will perish. So let's just make it all sweet and say everyone will be saved one day, like a popular author right now who has thousands and thousands of followers. Watch out for that. Jesus made it so clear. He said, narrow is the way that leads to life. And few, only few, find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go that way. I believe Jesus over any earthly author. And Jesus tells us the sweet. And he tells us the bitter as well. I've been through some bitter in the last 10 days. And I open up to John 11 and verse 25. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die, but I will raise them up on the last day. And I say, sweet. And then I turn to Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. And it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And my mother called on that name. I saw it and I heard it. Two days before she died, I prayed with her on the phone, and I heard her saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, while I was praying. I'll never forget those words. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sweet. And then there's things like this. He who has the Son has life. He who rejects the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains upon them. Bitter, sweet, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Sweet. And then so much bitterness. Sweetness to know, hey, one day Satan will be bound for a thousand years and Christ will reign and paradise will be restored. And, And how upsetting And sour it is to know in these chapters what people have to go through. Let us let the bitter be bitter and the sweet be sweet. And let us watch out from taking the bitter and putting it over the sweet. And taking away the sweet grace and love and mercy of God and replacing it for legalism. And working your way to heaven instead of receiving it as a free gift. You can do both, but it's very popular now to get rid of all the bitter things. Just sweet, sweet, sweet. Oh, let's redefine sexuality and marriage and make it sweet message for everybody. Let's just reinvent things. Oh, you know what? You you come through Jesus. How about Allah? How about other ways? Are you mean to tell me that everybody who trusts in Allah is lost? Yes, according to the Bible. Is that upsetting? Does it turn my stomach sour to have to say that? Is it, is it awkward and uncomfortable and, and offensive? Yes, that's what he says. John, take a bite. It's sweet, it's sweet, it's sweet. Oh, but there's a hell And whoever's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. It makes me want 
to throw up. And that's normal gospel. Normal gospel. It's okay. I believe there'll be a day in eternity where they're just sweet. I don't know how that gets all worked out when we know what we know. But I believe it. Let the bitter be bitter. Let the sweet be sweet. And let's do what John has to do. He says, in the meantime, in the pause, you got to tell people the bittersweet message to all people, all tribes, all nations. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the, the truth that sets our hearts free and the truth, the bitter parts and the sweet parts. We just thank you for your good and wonderful will. In Jesus' name, amen.